The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. He'll be in James chapter 1. Just a wonderful study so far, having this great privilege to go through the book of James, which is unique in that Paul wrote 13 of the books, and so James just wrote one. So it provides uniqueness in terms of the style of writing and even a point of emphasis. And it was the first New Testament book written, written by James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, came to believe in Jesus, his half-blood brother, after the resurrection and then rose to prominence in the early Jerusalem church and actually became the leader of the first church in Jerusalem, even equal to, if not more prominent than the apostles themselves, the twelve apostles. And James is now writing to Jews who've been scattered out of the area of Jerusalem for whatever reason, whether it was persecution and chased out of town or maybe a famine chased him out of town or other things providentially that God used. So he's writing to these dear believing Jews scattered abroad maybe 10 to 15 years after Jesus died and rose again. And it could very well be that many of these people that James is writing to, he knew them personally. As a matter of fact, it could be he was their former pastor. And they had great hope and anticipation at the time of the resurrection and the ascension when Jesus said, I will return again. And no doubt these first believing saints knew the promises of the Old Testament that the Messiah would indeed return again someday and literally rule in glory on the earth. And no doubt that was their expectation that the Lord Jesus, He he has risen as He said, ascended on high as He said, and now He's going to come again as he promises to, and they were probably thinking very soon, weeks, months, but then it turned into 10 and 15 years, and they probably were not expecting that. To them, 10, 15 years, that was not soon, or at least it wasn't soon enough. And so they had great anticipation. Wow, we've been waiting 10, 15 years, and during that time, they've got to live life. Life is hard. Living in a fallen world is hard. It's a grind. And James knew that, and so he wants to encourage his sheep scattered abroad, and he does with this great epistle. He writes to a people that are mature in their faith in terms of their knowledge anyway. They had a solid foundation in the Old Testament. Many of them may be eyewitnesses of Jesus himself. So probably not a whole lot of new, uninformed, ignorant believers. And that's why there are so many commands from the get-go in the book of James, because they already have a solid foundation in terms of theological knowledge, which is actually parallel for us here at Grace Bible Fellowship. Not everybody here is a new believer, but we have many people who have known Jesus a long time, and we've been living life as a Christian. And life can be hard and challenging and trying, isn't it? As a matter of fact, because we live in a fallen world, God told us very clearly in Genesis 3, Romans 8, so many other places, because this earth is cursed, this earth is fallen, we are fallen, life is hard. And that's what James says. So we've already seen how James has addressed that. Your life is no doubt filled with trials and temptations. Trials and temptations. It's a reality. We all have to endure trials and temptations. Little trials and huge ones. And temptations from our own sinfulness. And that's frustrating. And James' solution, actually the Holy Spirit's solution, when you're dealing with trials and temptations, the solution is not found in self or human wisdom. The solution is found in God and His wisdom and His revealed truth in Scripture and ultimately in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So if you're dealing with trials and temptations, the solution so far, James has basically told us four main things. In the midst of trials and temptations, you need to pray to God. James 1.5. And to survive trials and temptations, you need to believe God. Trust God. And then we moved on to the area of temptations. He said you need to pray to God. You need to believe in God. And now you can't blame God. That's the negative. Don't blame God in the midst of your trials and temptations. Don't blame Him. And now we're going to look at another point that is theocentric, God-centric in the midst of trials and temptations. And it's thank God. Thank God. That's the Christian worldview. That is the Christian attitude that we live day by day in the midst of confronting trials and temptations. Pray to God. Trust in God. Don't blame God. Thank God. And embrace His great truth. And that's really the theme of James as we're moving on to the next passage. We left off on James chapter 1, verse 16 last week. So we're going to look at really kind of 15 through 18, emphasizing 17 and 18 as he's now wrapping up his discussion on how we should face trials and temptations and what are the source and origin of trials and temptations and even what are the benefits of trials as God is refining us through the midst of trials. And the answer and the solution always in the midst of suffering is God always calls us to look up, to look to heaven, to look to Christ, to look to God, to look to the future, to look to His promises. Right? Get eyes off self and look to Him. He is our sufficiency. That's the solution to trials and temptations. And so he ends and culminates this argument with this beautiful crescendo of the greatness of God. And he's a giving God. He's a good God. He's a gracious God. He wants nothing but our good and our best in everything. He is a giving God, and he's going to give us an example of the greatest gift that God has ever given us. And the reason he's saying that, and he highlights that God is a giving God, and then he gives an illustration of the greatest gift that God has given humanity And the reason he's doing that is because he just got off of verse 16 and said, do not be deceived or literally stop being deceived. Well, what were they deceived about? Some Christians were deceived into thinking that in the midst of trials and temptations, it was God's fault. I'm in a trial right now because God is punishing me. That was a lie. Do not be deceived. Or I'm in the midst of this temptation and sin because God made me this way or God caused me to do this. No, he didn't. The blame is with self when it comes to sin and our lusts within And that's why he says in verse 16, stop being deceived. Don't believe the lies. You need to refocus, Christian, recalibrate your view of God. So what is your view of God? And that's what James wants to highlight. You need to have a proper view of God. Don't ever forget it, Christian. I struggle with this. Every Christian struggles with this. Your view of God. So he's going to elevate it to its proper place. Let's go ahead and look at it. What is my view of God? Well, it should be that, number one, first and foremost, God is a good God, and He's a giving God, and the greatest gift that He ever gave is salvation. And that's what James wants to highlight. So let's go ahead and look at it. So today, James 1, uh, 16 through 18, I call salvation the greatest gift. Uh, four points I want to highlight here out of this text. This is so rich, so deep. We can only scratch the surface, really, on this topic. Let's go ahead and pick up... Uh, Verse 13, he introduced the 
situation with Christians will be facing temptation towards sin. And he said that temptation comes from within, not from God. God doesn't tempt anybody. God can't be tempted. God is perfectly holy. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. How dare you, Christian, even think of impugning or implying that there's any darkness or temptation or connection with sin by God at all. Get it out of your mind. Sin's origin is within us, in our own lust, our unredeemed flesh. Don't impugn God and His holy character. Verse 16, do not be deceived. And then he makes a transition. So not only is God not tempted by sin whatsoever, here's an illustration to show you that God is just the opposite of sin. He's just the opposite of evil. He's just the opposite of darkness. And anything that hints at compromise or evil or temptation or sin. He is nothing but good. Good, good, good. That's what the psalmists write over and over again. Good is the Lord. Good is God. So follow verse 16 on. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Verse 18, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. What a great truth. Verse 17 and 18. There's nothing bad in those two verses. It is all good. It is all pure. It is all holy. It is all light. And it is all God. His very character and nature. He is a good God. So let's talk about this good God and the greatest gift He ever offered to humanity, which is the gift of salvation. Four points I want to make. And the first one is, who is this author of salvation? The author of salvation. Well, the author of salvation, according to the Bible, is God. And the main, two of the main points that James wants to highlight regarding this good God in respect to salvation is that God is good and God is immutable. Immutable, by the way, means unchanging. God never changes. God never changes. God doesn't have potential to get better. He's unchanging. He's always been perfect. Contrary to like Mormon theology, which says that God progressed, changed, and became God and used to be a man and the God that they believe in now continues to change and get better all the time. That's not true of the God of the Bible or even process theology, which some evangelicals have adopted this idea that God is always growing and getting better and He's learning more and He knows a lot, but He's learning more. That's totally untrue. God is not changing. He can't change. He's perfect. And so when you're talking about salvation, you've got to talk first about the author of salvation, which is God Himself. So verse 17, He does that. He describes God. Here's a great attribute a worldview, a perspective you should have of God in which we profess to believe in every good thing. Every good thing. And contrasted all that bad stuff regarding temptation and sin. So it's a dramatic contrast he's making. Get the thought out of your head that God has anything to do with temptation to sin. In contrast, verse 17, every good thing bestowed. Every good thing bestowed. Uh, and he's talking about in the spiritual realm. Or the necessities of life. Everything you have that is good in your life was bestowed down from where? He goes on, verse 17, Every good thing bestowed or given to you and every perfect gift is coming, uh, is from above coming down from the Father of light. So every good thing bestowed, every good thing in our life. Count your blessings one by one, says the song. And if you were to evaluate your life at any moment in your life, even if you're in the midst of trials, you have good things going on in your life. There are good things that have happened if you're a Christian that have taken place in your life. No matter what is going on. Number one, salvation, right? God has saved your soul. He's adopted you into the family of God. And so literally, that's a great exercise. In the midst of hard times and trials, sit down and know and listen that I am God and start counting 
literally delineating the blessings and the good things in your life. That's what he's saying. Be reminded, believer. Be reminded, believer, in the midst of trial. Be, be reminded, Christian, who's undergoing trial and hardship, that you have good in your life. You have good things, good gifts, perfect gifts coming down from God. And every good thing in your life, every good thing in my life that is indeed good came from God, came down from heaven, an undeserved gift, an unearned gift. That's what he said. What a great reminder about the true character of God, how undeserving we are and yet how good he is. Every good thing bestowed, given freely that you have in your life is from God. The way I like to think about it in my own life is every bad thing about me and every bad thing I do and every bad thing that I can think of in my life is my fault. And every good thing that is truly good is all God's grace and from Him. That's my worldview personally. And I believe it's from Scripture. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, the author of salvation. So this is a, there are several attributes that are given about this God, this saving good God. God is not a mean God. He's not up there in heaven, frowning, looking down, pointing his finger in anger all the time and only anger. He does have his holy wrath, but the scripture over and over again says he's a loving God. He's a merciful, patient, gracious, good God. And he has a plan. And his plan is to save, seek and to save sinners. That is good. We don't deserve salvation. God is good. Not only that, He's raining good down on the evil and the just in this life continually. He's a good God. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift. So that first attribute there about this God that we know that saved us, He is good inherently in His very nature and character. His very essence is goodness. And then James goes on to describe that goodness. He's a good giver. By nature, He is a giver. He continually gives. Some people are stingy, tight-fisted. Not our God. He's not capricious and stingy and withholding. He has an open hand. An open hand to the sinner. An open hand to the undeserving. Because He's a gracious giver. We can't outgive God. So He's a good God. He's a giving God. And the kind of gifts He gives are, are good. The very gifts that He gives are good. They're for our good. They are for our benefit. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't give us anything to hurt us. But every gift He does give is for our good. And also every gift He gives us is perfect. It says in verse 17, every perfect gift. Literally what it means is every uh, full gift, mature gift. It's exactly what we need. There's nothing deficient in it. It's exactly what we need. This is the kind of giver that God is. He's a good giver, a free giver, a gracious giver. And He gives appropriately and perfectly to every need that we have. He goes on about this giving, His very act of giving. It says in verse 17, how often does God give, by the way? Maybe you're thinking, well, He ain't giving it to me right now. Well, actually, He is. You, you just ain't seeing it. And we get that way, don't we, sometimes? We get myopic, right? Because of our sin, our perspective, our lack of faith, our trial... Whatever. He's still given. I believe He gave you breath to breathe your next breath, right? That is a gift from God. So His emphasis there in verse 17, actually where it says all these gifts, these good gifts that come from God are coming down. That's in the present tense and it means they are continually coming down. He is continually pouring good gifts on His children to bless them. 
Continually giving, continually giving. So don't tell me that God isn't giving to you because He is. Because it says right here He is. Continually giving good and appropriate things that you need in your life at the time. After all, He is your Father, He goes on in the verse to say. He is your Father. You have a personal relationship with, with Him through Jesus Christ. He's not just some generic, transcendent God. He is your Father by faith in Jesus Christ. And we know from Jesus Himself in the Gospels that God the Father, when He adopts His children into His family, we become believers. God is a better Father than we are as humans, aren't we? I've got four kids. I try to be the best Father I can be, but I am not as good of a Father as God the Father is towards me. Not even close. I try to be gracious with my kids in in terms of giving. I don't give as graciously, not even close, as to what God the Father gives to me as His child continually and always. He is always giving what I need at the appropriate time. And it's always the perfect thing. That is our gracious, giving, intimate, loving Father. He's also called the Father of Light there. That meant something to the Jews and the surrounding culture in the day of James. The Father of Lights. This is the only time this phrase is used of God in the New Testament or even in the Bible. And really, it's He's the Father of the luminaries. He is the Father of the sun and the moon. He is the, in other words, He's the Creator of the sun and the moon. And in the days of James... Uh, the, the known world, what, what did they think were the greatest entities and beings in the world? They thought literally it was the sun. They thought it was, those who were pagans thought the sun was alive. And the moon as well. And some people even thought the very life and origin was from the sun and the moon. And James is writing believers, uh, God is separate from His creation. He's greater than His creation. And think about the greatest thing that is universal in creation. It would be the sun. God is greater than the sun for He created the sun. That's how great our God is. And he goes on about this good God. He's a continual giver. He's a perfect giver. He's a gracious giver. And at the end of verse 17, he says, with whom there is no variation. Here's the the Father doesn't change. He does not change. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. And it's talking about His nature, His very essence. Yes, he, He left heaven and came down here and took on the form of a man. That was an external change, Jesus. But it's talking about he doesn't change in his very essential nature of being God, who he's always been God in his nature from all eternity. That never changes. That's what he's talking about. God doesn't change. He's always a good God. He's never evil. He never compromises. He's not like the sun and the moon that change all the time and cast shadows here and there. And the moon that sometimes you see and sometimes you don't see. And it's always changing and you can't even spot it sometimes. And where to go this time? And the sun goes, comes up, comes down, hides, always changing, casting shadows. God is not like that. He never changes. He is consistent. He is faithful. He is good. He is a gracious, beneficent giver to His people. Isn't that encouraging? That is the God that we know personally through Jesus Christ. So he's just hammering away this truth on the character, the attribute of God. Christian, as you face your trials and temptations in life, what is your view of God? He's a good God. So in summary, what is James saying here about this author of salvation, the greatest gift? Well, first and foremost, it starts with God. And God is good. Not only is He good, He is perfectly good. He is unchangeably good. And He is only good. That's our God. The author of salvation. Point number two, James goes on in verse 18 to talk specifically about an example, the greatest example of this good God and the greatest gift that he gives to humanity, which is personal salvation. Verse 18 says this. In the exercise of his will, God, the modern vernacular, or because he wanted to and chose to do so, that's what it means. Because He's sovereign in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth 
so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. Brought us forth means He saved us. He regenerated us. He spiritually made us reborn. That's what He did. This is the act of salvation. That's what this is talking about. And then this plays into the whole, you know, people raise their hand and ask, well, what about in James chapter 2 where, it, you know, you're justified by your works and it seems like James is contradicting Paul and Paul said you're saved by grace through faith apart from works and then James says you're justified by your works in James chapter 2 and it's like, well, before we go to James chapter 2, let's go to James chapter 1. Where in the beginning of James chapter 1, James talks about faith and faith is essential to be a believer. Then he goes to verse 18 and says, here's how you got saved, Christian. It wasn't by your works. It had nothing to do with you, Christian. It was all of God and it was through His grace and through His Gospel. That's how you got saved. So that ends the discussion or the debate that James teaches salvation by works. That sets the parameters. And that's what he's talking about in verse 18. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. So he's talking about salvation and how we got saved as an example that God is a good God and a gracious God and a continually giving God. And it gets real specific. And so I broke that up into three things. First is the act of salvation itself. The act of salvation. We know he's talking about salvation here because of the context and the very words he uses, the very verbs he uses, and even the tense of the verbs he uses in the Greek text that James chose. But the main word there in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. It's a specific Greek word that referred to a mother who was pregnant who gave birth to a child. You can't get any more vivid of an illustration of God talking about regeneration or somebody being spiritually born of God than that word. So it's talking about salvation. The act of salvation. And also the tense, the aorist tense of the verb takes us back to the time of conversion. So he's talking about when you, Christian, got redeemed the moment you believed, when you were saved, when you were born again, back at that time, when it happened, how did it happen, why did it happen? For me, it was at age 19. That's when I was brought forth by God. That act was done by Him. So the act of salvation. In other words, who saves? Is it man or is it God or is it a combination of both? Well, it's God. It's all God. James says that, and that's clear with every other teaching and book in the Bible. The act of salvation is accomplished by God, and that's God's sovereign initiative. God is sovereign in salvation. Sovereign. S-O-V and then R-E-I-G-N has the word reign. Reign. A reign. Someone is uh, reigning. King's reign. A king is someone with authority, sovereignty, all control. Sovereign. Sovereign. God is sovereign. He's the one that reigns with all supreme, ultimate authority. He has control over everything in the universe from the smallest details to the greatest realities, including spiritual rebirth and salvation. God is totally in control, causes salvation for every redeemed soul. God is in charge of salvation from beginning in the middle to the end. He is the author of salvation. That's what I mean by God is totally sovereign. He took the sovereign initiative. God is the one who saves. And that's what he's trying to emphasize here. Let me tell you about this God and one of the greatest gifts that he ever gave. It's called salvation. And let me remind you, Christian, when you got saved and how you got saved, it wasn't of you. It was all of God. And to emphasize that in the Greek text, one of the ways that you emphasize something is you move a word or a phrase to the beginning of a sentence. And that's what James does here at verse 18. He moves, he moves the word about being or God's will to the front of the verse. It was by His will. It was by His choice. It was by His decision. It was by His doing. It was by His decree. It had nothing to do with you or me. 
Salvation is all of God. That's why in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, when Jonah's inside the belly of a fish, he's afraid he's going to die, and he's, he's saying a prayer in the belly of the fish, and his eyes are probably closed, and it's slimy, and it's dark, and it's gross, and it stinks, and he's fearing death, and he prays out to God anyway. And he closes his prayer inside the belly of the fish, concluding saying, salvation is from Jehovah. That is a great statement. That is just a summary statement that says it all. Salvation is from Jehovah. That means God is the author of salvation, the culminator of salvation. He initiates salvation, He completes salvation, and He does everything in between. Salvation is totally apart from human effort whatsoever. Salvation is from the Lord. And that's really what James is emphasizing by saying at the beginning of verse 18, in the exercise of His will. How did I get saved? It was in the exercise of His will. Why did He save me? Because He wanted to. Because He chose to. That's God's sovereignty. He is sovereign over salvation in the exercise of His will. Well, did I deserve to be saved? Did God choose me because I deserved it? Absolutely not. Well, why did He save me? Why did He elect me and, and not elect others? Because, well, Ephesians 1.5 just simply tells us God chose us before the foundation of the world for His good pleasure. That's why He did it. Why did God do it? For His good pleasure. Because it pleased Him. Because He wanted to. Because He decided to. That's it. Well, that's not enough information. Well, that's all He gives us. It was because of His good pleasure, because He wanted... You know, and that should just humble us, shouldn't it? Wow, God, You chose me, You elected me because of Your sovereign will, according to Your good pleasure. Nothing of me deserving. God, what a gracious, merciful God. Thank You, Lord Jesus. Thank You, Father, for Your sovereign choice of saving me. So the act of salvation, it's God's sovereign initiative. Well, we have to believe. Yeah, we do. I'm not going to discount that. Well, that's the next point. Some people think that election means in eternity past, God looked down the corridors of time, and because God is omniscient and He can see the future, He looked down the corridors of time and He saw who would believe. Oh, McManus, he's, he's, he's going to believe, therefore I will elect him. That is not biblical election. Because then the ultimate decision and act of salvation was contingent upon what I would do. It is human-centered. That is not election. Election is God looks down the corridors of time and He selects those whom He wills for salvation and to bestow grace upon them. That's what the Bible teaches. On the flip side, the New Testament does not teach that God looks down the corridors of time and selects people to be damned. The New Testament never says that. People conclude that through human logic, but the New Testament doesn't say that. Election always, 100% of the time, in the New Testament is always a blessing to encourage believers. To remind them that they are secure in the grace of God. It's intended to be a blessing, election, not a point of debate and contention. So we need to keep it that way. Uh, so he goes on, um, the act of salvation, God's sovereign initiative. Jesus uh, categorically said in John 15:16 to his apostles, those that were saved, he said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. God took the initiative in salvation. Think of Adam and Eve. Remember when they sinned? And then they rebelled? It could very well be that Adam and Eve are in heaven today. I think very well they could be. They probably are because God is a gracious God. But it wasn't because uh, when Adam sinned, he said, forget this, Eve, I'm, I'm leaving the bushes and I'm going to go find God and repent and ask to be saved and forgiven. didn't happen. God had to hound them, hunt them down, shake the bushes, get out, let's talk. And God who seeks after sinners to save them, God was seeking after and hounding Adam and Eve. God took the initiative in salvation with Adam and Eve. 
because we don't take the initiative. We don't seek God on our own. God is the one that takes sovereign initiative in saving us because He's a good God wanting to impart and give the gift of salvation. Look at uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30 real quick. Romans 8. Because I just some people, and it's a legitimate question, wow, with all this election stuff and God initiated salvation and He's sovereign, yet I believed and you've got to exercise faith and there's a human component and element there. That's true. But what's the order of all this? When did God elect us? Did God elect us after He knew that we would believe or did He elect us before He knew we would believe or was it at the same time or how's that blah blah? And then on and on the human logic goes. It's very actually confusing. And there's, this is the passage that addresses the order and the decrees of God's salvation plan in terms of its sequence and historical chronology clearer than any other passage in the Bible. It's right here, laid out for us. How did it happen? How did God go about in terms of a sequence of deciding to save us and bringing that to fruition? In Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, here's how it happened. The first thing God did in verse 29 is He foreknew us. He foreloved us. That's synonymous with election in this context. First thing God did is He elected us. He elected to set His, love, his saving love on us in eternity past before we even existed. That's what foreknew means. No, uh, foreknew means. After He did that, foreknew, then, verse 30, He predestined us. That's a Greek word and it just simply means... He marked us out. Demarcation. His sovereign will marked us out. These are the ones who have been foreknown, elect by me who will be saved. That's what predestination means. Then after He foreknew us and elected us, then He marked us out with predestination before creation. The next thing He did, middle of verse 30, He called us. That happens in time. So then He elected us or foreknew us. Then He predestined us. Then we were born in time through our parents. And then during the course of life, He called us with the wooing of the Holy Spirit and the Gospel and our conscience. That's calling. So He foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us in life. And then at some point we believed, and that's the next one in the middle of verse 30, He justified us. That is the first time we exercise saving faith in response to His calling of the Gospel and His wooing of the Spirit. He foreknew us, predestined us, called us, justified us, or saved us in time. That's conversion. And then the next thing that will happen regarding our salvation, the end of verse 30, those whom He justified, He will glorify. And that's future that's yet to happen. That is the order and sequence of salvation from God's point of view. That's how it happens. And it's all of God. The only time we are even a part of the equation is at justification where we believe, right? Everything else is all of God. Let's go on to point number three. After the author of salvation, which is a good God, and the act of salvation, His sovereign initiative, number three is the agency of salvation, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we are involved in the process or the, this great gift of salvation. We are not robots. God doesn't coerce us or force us to believe. John Calvin even believed that and knew that. God doesn't save people against their will. He doesn't coerce them to believe. So if you got saved, when you became a Christian and regenerated, you, you did something. You believed. You exercised faith. That's what Jesus said. You've got to exercise faith. That's real. That's part of being a human being. You entered into a relationship with another personal being, God, and you had a real choice that you made. There was a real choice there. We exercised our volition. That didn't initiate salvation. That was a response to God's wooing. We answered the Gospel call with faith. And actually, God even gave us the faith to believe. But it was real faith. And we really made a choice. It was a real decision. It was an accountable decision. It was an informed decision. 
It was a personal decision. And it was in response to gospel truth initiated by God. But it was real. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the human component. You exercise faith. So the agency of salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Can a person be saved without hearing the gospel? Don't answer out loud, but think it in your mind. I'll say it again. Can a person be saved without hearing the gospel? Now, occasionally, for whatever, whether I'm in a class or just talking to somebody, the topic will come up, and I'll ask him that question. Can a person be saved without hearing the gospel? And I'm actually surprised at how many times a Christian will tell me, yes, someone can be saved without hearing the gospel. I'm like, wow, we need to go back to basics. Or at least I thought this was basic. No one can be saved without hearing the gospel. The only reason I say that is because that's what Paul said in Romans 10, verse 14. No one, the gospel is what saves, Romans 1, 16. No one can be saved apart from hearing the gospel, Romans 10, 14, because they need a preacher. How shall they be saved without a preacher? How shall they hear the gospel without somebody preaching it? No one can be saved in this era after the coming of Christ without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only reason I believe that is because it's in the Bible and clearly stated. And that's why Paul beckons believers. That's why we need missionaries. That's why we need evangelists. And that's why every Christian needs to be a vessel of gospel truth to go everywhere and give the gospel to whoever we can all the time. Thinking about, uh, I've got six older, five older brothers. I've got one brother who's an older brother who said ixnay on religion to me about 25 years ago. Put a moratorium on talking about religion. And was adamant about it. And I was like, okay. Been praying for his salvation and now he has a form of cancer. So I just talked to him this week. Wow, and all of a sudden he's been softened and willing not to talk about everything, but he's willing to hear me a little bit about this religion thing, God thing, Jesus thing, salvation. But he needs a messenger. He needs the gospel. So you've got to start with the circle around you your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors. Because people cannot be saved without hearing the gospel. And God has chosen in His sovereign plan to use us, human individuals, to share that gospel. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? You can't join GBF unless you can answer that question. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And those of you who aren't members yet, I'll help you out. I'll give you the answer. The gospel is, you could say 1 Corinthians 15.3 if you wanted to. That Jesus Christ died for sins. Jesus Christ was crucified for sins. He was buried, according to the Scriptures. He rose again, conquering death, sin, the devil, according to the Scriptures. Died and rose again. Jesus, the God-man. We are sinners. We're separated from God. God must punish sin. God hates sin. God is angry with sin. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus is the solution to God's hatred for sin and His wrath towards sin. And Jesus willingly came and died on the cross and absorbed the wrath of a holy God as our substitute as sinners so we can be totally forgiven by a holy God and accepted into His family as our Father. With all of our sins forgiven, past, present, and future, because of the work of Jesus Christ by dying, living a perfect life, Dying a willing substitutionary death, rising from the dead, reigning on high. That is the good news. That is the gospel. Amen. That is good news, isn't it? That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very simple. It's good news. I was talking to a brother this week. He's asking me for advice on witnessing to 
some unbelieving friends that he's been witness to for years. And they're talking about, oh, they're debating on election and the nature of election and evolution and creation and on and on and on. And this has been going on for 11 years. This con- I said, forget that. You're talking to an unbeliever? Forget that. Do not talk about creation out of nothing in six days. Do not talk about election because that guy is an unbeliever. doesn't even have the ability or capacity to believe those truths. Only a supernatural, regenerated Christian with the indwelling Spirit of God can believe those truths. They defy human reason. Just talk to him about Jesus. That's it. Well, he doesn't want to talk about Jesus. Yeah, there's a reason he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to talk about his sin. Well, I know. He doesn't want to talk about the Gospel. That's why you keep talking about it. That's the Gospel. And that's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, for it, it, the Gospel, is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Forget creation, election, and all these other controversial issues, and abortion, and blah, blah, blah. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's the Gospel. It's the power of salvation. Don't lose focus, Christian. It's the greatest gift. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He gave it as a gift. It's not deserved. It is not earned. It is graciously, freely given by a good and gracious God. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish in hell, but will be forgiven of sin and have eternal life. Even in this life, eternal life. The agency of salvation, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then James concludes with the aim of salvation or one of the goals of salvation. Why did God save me? Why did God save us? There's actually many reasons. For His good pleasure, for His glory. Those are theocentric. There are anthropocentric, man-centered reasons of why God saved us. He saved us for our good, to bless us so we can have fellowship and relationship with Him. They complement theocentric reasons. There are many reasons why God saved sinners. So one of those, the aim of salvation, James tells us, one of the reasons that God saved us with this great gracious gift initiated by Him called salvation, he says in the exercise of His will, verse 18, He brought us forth or He saved us by the word of truth. See, He did it by the gospel. That's what means the word of truth is the gospel and only the gospel. You can't be saved by philosophy or the cosmological argument or human philosophy or human logic or human reasons or archaeological evidence. Evidence is it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are brought forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. That is the aim. That we might be the first fruits. Or what I call the aim of salvation. Examples of the new creation. The new creation yet to come. There's a fullness of the new creation yet to come. The restoration of all things is yet coming. And right now God has given us a glimpse of the new creation. The fullness of the new creation right now in this life starting in my own soul. Because anybody who believes and is a Christian is a new creature, a new creation right now. Much of me is unredeemed. My flesh is unredeemed. But there is a part of me that is a new creation that manifests the reality of this creating God who will accomplish the fullness of salvation ultimately in the future in the phase called glorification. And right now it starts with first fruits. First fruits comes right out of the Old Testament. The book of Exodus, chapter 23, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all three books where God told His people Israel, to illustrate the kind of saving God that He was. Anytime you have a crop and it's harvest time, like I used to grow radishes. Actually, I had an entire garden as a little kid, third grader. Huge backyard, parents gave it all to myself. And the other nine siblings watched me raise this awesome garden, corn and every conceivable vegetable. And the first thing that ever came up and was harvested were the radishes. And everybody in the family hated radishes except for me. And so, cool, nothing like going out, getting the first 
the first fruits of the entire row of radishes where I get to pull up about three of them. And wow, these ones were quick. They grow... Uh, they were first, they're the first fruits, and I'd wash off the first fruits of the three radishes. Actually, what I'd do is i come in and I'd give them to my mom, and she would pretend like she liked them and ate them. And the first fruits was those first ones from the crop that was the guarantee that there's more to follow. And that's what he's saying. You are the first fruits, believers, dispersed abroad here in Palestine. God saved you, and you're not the only ones being saved, by the way. Something better is coming. A more greater fullness is coming. More saints are going to be saved. And that's, that is a loaded statement. Who were... Uh, what was the greater fulfillment yet to come based on the first fruits of the believers of the New Testament church in the early day? What was the rest of the first fruits that was yet to come? Well, there were the Gentiles yet to be saved under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. There was the entire nation of Israel that God has elect in the future. God has a future for the nation of Israel. That is yet to come. That's part of the fullness of the first fruits. Even in our own individual lives, right now, my soul is saved. My unredeemed humanity is not and I feel conflicted in this life, and I want full restoration and salvation and glorification, and that will happen someday in the afterlife. So that is a byproduct of the first fruits yet to come, and even all of creation. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit GBF sv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.